You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here this morning. I hope you're having a, a great morning. I, I'm drinking that coffee from the lobby, and I'm like, whew, I'm feeling it. Someone put some, like, extra coffee inside the coffee. We got coffee and coffee here. Um, we, are, we are so excited to have you, and I just want to give a round of applause to our guys who lead us um, uh, in, in song. Can you give them a round of applause? <clears throat> um, in case those songs, if you're new here and those songs are unfamiliar in any way, um, our guys intentionally write uh, a lot of songs that are coming from the Word of God, so coming from Scripture. As you're singing those songs, the Word of God is, is, uh, is getting in your heart, is getting into your mind, and, and is transforming you as you sing. And so we're so grateful for those guys who lead us um, in, in, uh, in the Word of God as we sing as well. I'm, uh, I'm really excited again for our summer interns. We give them a round of applause um, who are here in the back there. Um, as well as our new staff member, uh, Christian. You can stand up um, and everyone give him a round of applause. Um, uh, Pastor in training. And then um, once again, also for Connor being back here, uh, you can give him a round of applause. Uh, And Caroline, I'm sorry. Uh, Caroline as well. She's actually his better half. I don't know why we just don't say Caroline's here. And oh yeah, Connor is too. Yeah, you know. Um, And uh, I want to also just take a minute and uh, give you guys uh, just a big thank you. So my family and I, we went home um, last, uh, I think, um, I don't know, the days run together. Uh, But sometime early last week, I think Sunday evening, maybe Monday, and uh, we went home because my grandma was sick. And and my grandmother, uh, she is still alive, but um, my family lives in Chicago, and uh, it's kind of hard to know when your family is far away, like, what do you do? Um, because it's not like a, a trip down the road. It's, it's you know, 13 hours uh, if you're going to drive, and uh, it's a, a couple hours of a flight. <clears throat> so uh, my grandmother, she, uh, she was, she's sick. She's, she's old in age, and, and she's uh, sick. She's uh, got a, a lot of things going on. Internally, we, we believed that it would probably be uh, the last opportunity we had to say goodbye. And uh, we went and uh, spent a lot of time, and uh, she's, she's uh, still alive. So we came back, um, and, uh, and I guess we just wait on the Lord. And, um, but it, it's hard to know, and, and I just uh, was reminded of how grateful I am for our church and for our church family. And a lot of you guys tech texted and, and called, and, and I just want to thank you guys uh, for that as, as we've been kind of just waiting. Now we're back here, and it's, you know, we don't know how long that'll be, and if we kind of have to travel back there, you guys will hear next week. Uh, um, I, my family will be going on sabbatical for, for a couple of weeks, our first um, opportunity now three years into this um, church plant uh, that we'll have a, a, a break um, from all ministerial-related items, and uh, so you guys will have to call Chad. Please do so very often. Um, he's going to handle all your problems, okay? And uh, the church, um, I know, will, will grow and, and do wonderful in, in my absence. Um, 
And I also wanted to take a minute um, as I was, as you kind of get away from, um, from life and you kind of step outside of normal rhythms, um, you begin to realize some things as well. And, and I just was reflecting, excuse me, reflecting so much on how grateful I am for our children's ministry workers. Um, I'm not sure why those, the Lord just flooded my mind uh, with our volunteers, but I, I want to I, I tell you very genuinely and honestly um, that that is by far one of the most important ministries that we have as a church. Um, our next generation um, and, and being invested in in that way is so, so vital. I know um, a, as a parent and I know from listening to a lot of uh, testimonies about a lot of um, people in the ministry, a lot of godly people, um, that it's not a guarantee that our children would know and follow God, right? It's not a guarantee that, that they would know the Lord and come to love him with all of their heart and follow him for their lives, no matter how much we do as parents, or no matter how much we do as as a church, and uh, and I was just thinking to myself of of you know what uh, what an important task our children's ministry volunteers have to genuinely invest the gospel and God's word into the lives of our children. Um, to raise them up. They will be the ones who will impact the community. They will be the ones who impact uh, our church and impact the world, ultimately. Sounds cliche to say that, um, but it's just true. And I, I know oftentimes with my daughter, um, I, uh, I lay down at night, and, and I apologize probably like 75% of, of the days, right? At night when I put her down after we read, I'm like, sweetie, I'm so sorry. Daddy, Daddy didn't do this today. He he, you know, I, I'm sorry for, for getting upset about this, this, you know, and she consistently tells me, daddy, like, stop apologizing, right? She's four years old. I hope that stays that way because one day what she's going to say is, yeah, you, you better apologize, okay, because of what you did, right? Um, but I think that uh, she's got such a gracious heart towards me. But I just think about the fact that we don't have to be perfect as a church. We don't have to be perfect um, as Christians. We don't have to be perfect. Um, the truth of the matter is, if you're new to Christianity or you're just observing, this whole thing, we're all hypocrites, right? We all, we all strive to do what God's word says, and, and we don't, okay? Um, but, we, but we claim that we want to follow. We, we desire to know the Lord. We desire to uphold the things that he gives us, although we're not perfect. But what's so important, I think, for us is genuineness, and I think it's so important for our children. I think if we, just be, if we were to be genuine and just um, honest about our faith and our shortcomings and our, and our vulnerabilities and just genuine what you see is what you get, I think that they would um, open up to a faith that's real rather than shun um, maybe a faith that's fabricated. And so what I want to say for our children ministry volunteers is, is that I think that our, our workers, our volunteers in that way, pr- uh, uh, show a genuine faith to our children. And I want to give them a round of applause uh, for doing so. <clears throat> so... Um, with that being said, we're moving into Luke chapter 4, and uh, we're going to end uh, Luke chapter 3 today as well. You can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, um, starting in verse 23. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23. 
Um, if you're new here, here's what we do, okay? We walk through um, uh, books of the Bible and teach them in that way um, because we want to take what God's Word has for us um, at each step of the way rather than for me to, to come up with that in my mind. You don't want that. Um, we want to just take what God's Word says and we want to teach right through it. So with this being the case, listen, we're taking, uh, we're taking the book of Luke in order. We're walking through the Gospel of Luke. And now what you have probably seen if you've been here up until this point is that we've been kind of saying a lot of the same things in different ways. That's what we've kind of been doing. You're like, well, the whole time what Luke has been doing is he's been building a case for Jesus being fully man and fully God. We've been seeing that Jesus is the son of man, meaning he's fully what? Human. And he's the son of God. He's fully God, right? So we've been seeing this case. Now, you might think, well, no, duh. Well, listen, um, that's, that's not an obvious thing. We're not serving a demigod, right? Who's like half and half or some and some. Like We're serving one who's fully human and yet fully God. And this is what we've watched up until this point. And it's very good for us to get this because here's what happens is over the course of time, when you see things in scripture and your heart tends to say like, no, duh, like I already got this. If I were writing this Bible, I would move on from this point and I would write about some different things that are more helpful, right? When you think that, listen, when you think that, because I know that we all do, when you think that, here's a good tip, stay there. If you think to yourself, I'm reading this, no, duh, this is obvious, like we've already talked about Jesus being a son of man, son of God for umpteen weeks now, like can we move on? Here's the advice. Stay in that. Because what that reveals is the distance between your heart and God's. It shows how far off you are in your thinking from what God thinks is important. And so God's word, Jesus is showing us, the Father is showing us, Luke is showing us this whole time for, for nearly four chapters that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man and is indeed the Son of who? God. That's what he's doing. He's been building this case. Now, Luke, you know from the very beginning in chapter one, he, he is compiling an account a carefully put together account that he shows us in Luke chapter one, he, he, he tells us that this is what he's doing of the life of the son of God so that we might be sure of these things. So listen, when we're reading this and Luke is compiling this account, evidence after evidence after evidence that Jesus really is all man and he really is the son of God, we need to pay attention. I think what would be good for you to ask yourself is that is, ask yourself honestly, genuinely, is this boring to you? Is it boring? Is this, is this maybe something that everybody else around you needs, but you don't? You already know the story of Jesus. You already know the story of the Son of God. Old news. Let's move on. My advice to you is stay there. Allow God to shape your thinking because Jesus, the Son of God who died on your behalf for your sin, there's nothing more important than you loving and following him. So let me tell you so far how Luke has set this up. Luke has shown us 
through testimony. Through testimony of what's happened, through narrative of what's happened. Listen, Jesus, he's coming into the world in his birth of what we've seen. And there's testimony after testimony. Listen, this is what's happened so far, okay? We've seen God and his angels come to humans. We've seen Elizabeth, right? We've seen Zechariah. Elizabeth, you're going to bear a child in your own age. Zechariah, you're going to bear a son. And that son is going to be named John the... And his only task is going to be to point and to say, that's him. That's him. That's him, right? He's going to be the one who gives the testimony. This is the son of God. That's his job, right? And then we see Joseph and Mary, right? And the angel comes to Mary and we see uh, the, the parents live a life in which they're understanding that this child is indeed the son of God. And then we see shepherds and we see angels. And, in, in, and though everything looks extremely humble and hidden, like the, the son of God's coming in in a manger, you know, like, th this doesn't make any sense. It, it, you know, people are trying to kill him. He's running from one place to the other. Now he's going to Egypt. He's coming back. He's, he's growing up in Nazareth. Like, what's the deal here? This, is, this can't be the son of God. And yet angels peel back the curtains of heaven, and they're all praising this baby, showing us once again this indeed is the... All right. And then what we see is Simeon and Anna right? The testimonies of them at the temple. And what did they point to? They say, surely this man is the son of God. And then we see John the Baptist in the baptism of Jesus. And he comes and he says, here he is. The one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He indeed is the son of God. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, he does it to fulfill all righteousness, right? To be the one who submits to the Father. Even though Jesus had no sin he needed to repent of, he had no saving that needed to be done of his soul, he submits as a man being baptized by John coming out of the water. We see his, his humanness, his manhood, and yet at the same time, probably most uh, importantly for us to see out of all of this, not probably, absolutely, the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? The voice from heaven and the Holy Spirit descending, and the Father says, this is my, he's my son. He's the son of God. In him, I have great pleasure. So this whole time, this is what we've been seeing, the son of God. We've seen this this testimony. Now, what we're going to cover today is going to be like the solidifying authentication of him being the son of God. We've seen this testimony. Now we're going to see this like authenticating take place. And starting next week, Josh Seals, Josh Seal in this room. I don't want to embarrass him, but I'm going to give him a round of applause. He is going, you don't even know why you're clapping. Just give him a round of applause. He is, he's going to be preaching next week. Okay. And I'm excited for you guys to hear from him. Um, we've been working together through some of that. And, uh, and what he's going to be preaching is where Jesus begins to declare to the world that he's the son of God. So now going forward, Jesus is now declaring it. It's, it's been testimony, evidence. We're authenticating it today. And then he'll be declaring it, Jesus will be, to the ends of the earth for the rest of the gospel. And that's important. That's vital. Why? Because what is it that you need to believe in order to receive salvation? That Jesus is the son of God. 
So Jesus is going to be declaring it. We've been seeing the testimony. Today, we're going to see the authentication of this. And so, as we read this, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. Look at chapter 3, verse 22, as we begin to walk through this, which if you're new here, that's what we're going to do. So open up your Bibles, open up your tablet, uh, uh, any device that you have, keep open Luke chapter 3 and 4, and we're literally going to walk through it because that's what we want to do. We want to see the scriptures and understand what they say, and they'll have great profound impact on our lives. So chapter 3, verse 22. Um, We see the baptism. We're going to read that in a second. When we move into verse 23 of chapter 3, I'm not going to read it. I tried, and I'm I'm not doing a very good job at all those names, okay? Um, But we will point out a few important uh, pieces of information. Literally, that whole section will say, son of, son of, son of, son of, with a whole lot of names that um, I'll embarrass myself with um, attempting to pronounce, okay? And so then we'll move into chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We'll go all the way to verse 13, and that's going to be our section today. The reason why we're covering so much ground is because prior to me leaving to, um, to see my grandmother, I told Josh where he'd be preaching next week. So that's what you get for planning ahead, right? Because now I'm like, I got to get there so Josh can do his sermon that he's preparing for. But I think we can do it justice in our time. So let's look at verse 22. And then I'll point some things out to you in the next section, and then I'll read uh, 4, 1 through 13, and then we'll walk through it. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then we move on to another name. And then we jump down to verse 34, and we see that he was the son of Abraham, right? Before that, we see in verse 31 that he was the son of David. So we see Jesus, we see Joseph, We see David, we see Abraham, and lastly, in verse 38, we see that he is the son of Adam, the son of God. Now keep this in mind. Keep with the theme. You guys starting to see a pattern here, right? Voice from heaven, Holy Spirit, this is my son. We see this whole pattern here, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of God. And now we move into chapter 4, where you see Satan use his main way of asking the question is, if you are really the Son of God, do this. Jesus is showing us, God is showing us he's the Son of God. And it's important. So don't, again, don't say no duh, right? We got to say, oh yeah, I got to stay here. God's got to do work in my mind. Let's read chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they shall, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an appointed time. So much information here authenticating Jesus being the Son of God. Let's look at it, and we're going to look at a few things specifically, and then we're going to move into the temptation account, and we're going to see that um, extensively. So here's what we see so far in what I've just showed you. The first is the affirmation of the Father and the Spirit. The affirmation of the Father and the Holy Spirit, affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. The voice comes out of heaven after Jesus comes up out of the water. Verse 22, the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form so that people can see him, right? Because he's spirit like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What we see here is that the Father and the Spirit are affirming to us and to the people watching that this indeed is the Son of God. Now to us, retrospectively, this is obvious. You know the, the Word of God. You, you, you hear the stories. To you, this is obvious. But to the people that he's writing to and the people that are present, this is not because Jesus' coming into the world looks anything like, anything but like one who is the Son of God. He looks poor and hidden and impoverished. He doesn't look like the Son of God. He looks like a man, maybe less than one. And so John here is baptizing Jesus, but the Father and the Holy Spirit are affirming his sonship. And I want to tell you, if you're on the fence about whether or not you believe in Jesus and whether or not this is true, some of the greatest confirmation you'll get is what we just read, is the Father and the Spirit. And if, and if that's hard for you to believe, it, listen, I say this lovingly, then what's, you, what you're dealing with is, is whether or not you believe s Scripture to be true. And we have to have some form of objective truth. We can't just be true in our own eyes, because what if my truth says your truth is a lie? And is your true true or my true true? The Word of God is the objective reality of truth that lives outside of us, that helps us to believe in what's right. And the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus is declared by all the Scripture to be the Son of God. And that's where we find our belief, our faith, in His words, in the words of the Father who declares Him to be the Son of God and the Holy Spirit that descends upon Him to affirm Him to be so. The second thing that we see in what we've read is the verification of the genealogy. The verification of the genealogy. No one likes to read genealogy passages, right? You're like, oh gosh, here we go, okay? You probably skip over those in your Bible reading. Um, just be honest, okay? Come on, right? You're like, no, I read every one. 
All right, all right. We're in church. You can't lie, okay? Um, Just kidding. Those are hard to read, but there's significance as to why they're there. Let me tell you. Genealogies are very, very important, and they especially were important for the Jewish people. Okay, they they determined whether someone would inherit land, property. Um, We see that specifically in the book of Ruth. You guys remember when we taught through that book, right? They marry a kinsman redeemer and to redeem and and inherit all that was um, in her family, right? Um, When someone does not have a family like that, a woman especially, um, who is not married and maybe their husband dies, they, they... the, the land goes to the, the kinsman redeemer in that way and, and the property. Listen, it's a very, very important thing. It's also very important because of the priesthood, right? The priesthood was passed down through which um, group of Israelites? The Levites, right? So you got to know whether you're in the Levitical priesthood in order to understand if you're going to be a priest. And also, probably most importantly, your family line shows you to be royalty or not if you're in a king's line or you're not. So Jesus in this lineage is being specifically portrayed to be the one who inherits everything. The one who inherits all land, all property, the one who indeed is the high priest and indeed truly the king, the son of God, the king of the world. Where do we see this? Well, we see that specific names should lend themselves to being very, very important to us. The first is that we see the name Abraham, as we walk through this. Now, let me just tell you, this is going in reverse order, okay? This is coming from Jesus all the way down rather than coming from God all the way up to Jesus. So it's going down, and what we're seeing is after we see Jesus beginning his ministry, verse 23, look at the text. What we see is that it, as it walks through, we see the name Abraham. What, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Abraham, verse 34. So let's, sorry, let's go back up. David, we see David first. Now, when we see David, what do we know about the prophet? prophecy of the the scriptures that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So it's very, very important to prove the royalty. Now, this wouldn't be doubted. This wouldn't be doubted. I was listening to something this week, and it was very, very helpful for me to understand some of this. Did you know that in the scriptures, um, there's nowhere that anybody disputes whether or not Jesus came through the line of David? And all of these Jewish records would be very close at hand. They kept detailed records. No one disputes the fact that Jesus is through the line of David. They dispute other reasons why they don't believe he's God, but a lot of people came through the line of David. So how do we know, Jesus, that you're truly the Son of God, the Messiah? There's no doubt of this. Even Satan in the temptation, when he says, if you are really, it's probably more like since you are the Son of God do this. And so there's, there's no debate here, but he's coming through the line of David. Now, this is incredibly important because this proves that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And so this is vital for us to understand that this lineage is being shown that he is indeed the Son of God through the line of David. In addition to that, look forward. We see the name Abraham, the Abraham. So he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is also the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Through the Abrahamic covenant, what we see is that God will pour out blessings upon his people. That was the Abrahamic covenant, okay? God will pour on blessing, his blessings through, uh, th- through his line, 
um, upon his people. So he's fulfilling this, this Abrahamic, this Davidic covenant. Now look at the end here. What we see is that he's also fully a man. He's fully a man. Why? What do we see? That he is truly the son of who? Adam and then the son of God. So let me summarize this. Ready? Through this genealogy, Jesus is fully human. He's the son of Adam. Jesus is our blessing through the Abrahamic covenant nationally. He is through Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. Through this, David, Jesus is truly the king. He is through the son of, he is the son of David. He is truly fulfilling the Davidic covenant. And yet at the same time, Jesus is truly the son of, lastly, the son of God. He's all things. Luke is pouring on the information and the proof that this is who Jesus is. Is. Now, let me just tell you what is so wonderful about this as we see this is that what's probably happening, go back to verse 23, and then we'll be out of this text because we're not going to spend a whole much more time on a whole lot of more time on this. Verse 23. When you see that Jesus began his earthly ministry, okay, we can we can look back to Ezekiel chapter one where Ezekiel began his prophetic ministry at verse 30 at, at age 30. Joseph began his ministry at age 30, Genesis 41. David, the king, began his ministry 30 years at 30 years, 2 Samuel 5. Um, we see the priestly roles were to begin their priestly service at age 30, Numbers chapter 4. So we see prophet, priest, king, once again, um, brought back to our mind. This is Jesus, the prophet, the priest, the king, through the Abrahamic covenant, through the David, Davidic covenant, truly man, and also the son of God. That's what's all being proven here through this, while at the same time, last thing that is uh, wonderful that we that we see here is if you look at verse 23 again we see that there's that parenthesis where it says as was supposed the son of who joseph so what does that mean why does he say that why does he say supposedly the son of joseph because he wasn't truly joseph's what biological son he was, he was brought into Joseph's family from God. And in Matthew chapter 1, what we see is the same. We see a genealogy, except it's different. Everything from David on is different. In Matthew chapter 1, everything from David on is different. And what we see is it goes through a line of Joseph. Here, what we think is happening is that this from David on, since it's different, is being brought through the line of, of Mary. So even though he would truly inherit the Davidic reign through Joseph, if you want to say, hey, look, but he must be specifically blood, well, then here's the true bloodline through Luke. It turns out Mary's also a descendant of of David. So both ways, Jesus is a descendant of David through Joseph and through Mary, different ways. And everything from before that, David before that, is the same. So here's what I want to tell you. Throughout all of this, the genealogy is just verifying to you Jesus is truly the what? Son of God. Number three, and lastly, I know this is um, a lot of information. Number three, what we see is the confirmation of the victory over Satan. So now in this last portion, what we're seeing, and in the text that you're very familiar with, we see Jesus defeat who? Satan. Now what's the point of this? What's the point of this? Is the point that we would see Jesus' tactics towards the enemy. That's one point. 
It's the point that we would understand uh, how to defeat him ourselves or what type of situations we might be in when Jesus um, is tempted and we might be in those same tempting situations. That sure could be another point, and we're going to point those out. But the proof here is this, that the reason why this text exists is to prove Jesus' victory over evil, sin, death, Satan himself. Because listen, Jesus is the Son of God. And now you might say once again, well, no, duh, I know he has victory. You got to stay there. Because listen, if Jesus doesn't defeat evil, if Jesus doesn't defeat sin, if Jesus can't overcome Satan, then your salvation is non-existent. It just doesn't exist. And you see how much we can lose our appreciation for that. Like I'm speaking for myself, I can lose my appreciation for the fact that I have one who can conquer Satan, one who can conquer sin. Although I can't myself, right? It's ever before me, as David said in Psalm 51, my sin is ever before me. Like all I do is see my sin, right? David saw his sin, and we do too, everywhere. And Jesus lives a perfect life so much so that he has victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell. And that's why you can have eternal life. And so this is what we're seeing in this instance. It's incredible. What we're seeing in this last preparatory phase of Jesus confirming that he is the son of God. He's sinless. He defeats Satan. He's greater than Adam. And he's greater than all um, of the Israelites representing all of mankind. So in this, we see once again, he's showing himself to be the son of God as the devil saying, since you are the son of God, do this. And he fulfills being sinless. So what do we see? How do we walk through this chapter four? Walk with me through verses one through 13. You ready? Um, Number one, what we see is the leading. Number one, what we see is the leading in verses one through two. Okay. And I want you to understand something. Even though Jesus is the son of God, he's also the son of man. And so Jesus, Jesus for a specific time, puts away his independent um, authority and his godness, okay, to submit to the Father. That's why when he's baptized, he says it's to fulfill all righteousness. He's to become a man like us. And so in this instance, what he's doing is being led by the Holy Spirit. Look at this, verse 1, chapter 4. And Jesus was full of what? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus into this situation. So you maybe shouldn't even look at it as if Satan is pouncing on Jesus, but more so that God is pouncing on Satan. Right? Like that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is saying, we're going to prove once and for all, before we start declaring it, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's got all victory over all sin, all death, all hell, even Satan himself. Let's lead him into the desert so we can win the battle. That's what's happening in this instance. The Holy Spirit is leading him right after the, the baptism into the spirit, uh, in, by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, what do you know about the wilderness? What we call it is the what? Desert. So the wilderness isn't a lush forest. It is a dry desert. That's where Jesus is being led alone to be tempted by the devil. And we could see something here practically is that, and I think it's done without taking it out of context, Jesus has just come from an incredible time with the Lord, with his Father. 
into a very, very dry time where he's going to be extremely tempted. And I think that there's a pattern there. I, I think that that pattern is the pinnacle of why Jesus was the most vulnerable as a human being right now. Is that he was confirmed by the Father. You've been on the mountaintop with God. And then it seems like before you know it, in the snap of the finger, you're in the valley. I think it's opportune time for Satan to pounce. And this is opportune time. He was on the mountaintop, he was confirmed by the Father. And now he's in the wilderness and he's isolated, he's alone, and he's without any source of sustenance for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing for those days. And when those days were ended, after those 40 days, when he was at his peak of vulnerability, Satan comes in with probably the most vital piece of attack that he can present to the Son of God to try to make him sin. Satan is not doubting whether Jesus is the Son of God. Satan is going to try to deter him from fulfilling the plan to die for our sins. So what happens in this, listen, is he tempts him. Now, I want you to see something before we, before we move on. Let's look at how Jesus fulfills the greatness. What, was, what kind of situation was Adam in when Satan tempted him with the similar temptations? Yeah, say, uh, Jesus, he was in the desert, was, was Adam in a desert? No. He was in what? Garden. Jesus was without food. Was Adam without food? No. He had everything that he needed. And literally God is telling Adam, Adam, I will give you everything. I will provide everything for you. Depend on me. I'm yours. I love you. Let's have close relationship. Let's, I, I will be your God and you will be my son and I will provide everything for you. And when Satan comes in, even in the most luscious, comfortable um, environment of provision, what, had him, what happens when Satan says this, almost the exact same things to Adam in the garden? Jesus fulfills all sinlessness and, and Adam falls at the first temptation of Satan. You want to eat? Eat. And Adam eats. Jesus is better than Adam. What about Israel? Israel's walking around the desert, right? And what happens? They cry out. Give us bread. Give us food. We can't make this anymore. And Jesus says, all right, I'll just rain it down from heaven, right? Here comes bread out of the sky, literally, because of your faithlessness. So what we see here is in this leading, in this situation, Jesus is in, in a different situation than all of them, and it's showing us, it's leading us back to him being greater than Adam because we would refer our minds back to this, but also the idea of the 40 days being in there brings our mind back to the Israelites and says, okay, within this, Jesus is better than all of mankind, all of God's people, all of the Israelites, which almost represents us as, as human beings. It's once again showing him to be the son of God. Look at this, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, chapter 2, brings our minds back there. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had led you these how many years? 40, in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. They couldn't, but Jesus does. 
He's the son of God. Numbers chapter 32, verse 13. And that Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He made them wander into the wilderness for 40 years until all the generation that had done the evil in his sight of the Lord was gone. It brings our mind back to the Israelites. They couldn't sustain themselves and be righteous and sinless, but Jesus could. Exodus 24, 18. Moses, we see a picture of Moses who entered into this, this, uh, this intimacy with God, brings our mind back to Jesus being in this intimacy with God here. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for how long? 40 days, 40 nights. There's intimacy, there's isolation, yet Jesus is better than Adam, and Jesus is better than the Israelites. This is a weak time. Jesus was just on the mountaintop, but here we go. Satan is about to pounce. What we see now, secondly, is the testing. We got the leading, and now we got the testing. We got the testing, and I'm going to take you through this. We're going to move through it. In this testing, what do you know that Jesus does? He uses what to combat the devil? Scripture. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, look at this. Ready? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the? All right. Jesus is about to do battle. Guess what he's going to use? The greatest sword he's got. The Bible. And we see the first temptation. The first temptation, what we see comes from Satan, and here's how Jesus shows himself to be the Son of God. Ready? Number one. First, Jesus trusted God's sovereign care. Jesus trusted God's sovereign care. This is the first temptation we see. Look at it with me. Verse three. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to be bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is the first temptation. And what you see here is something that is not sinful. Bread, food, sustenance, being used as a temptation to do something sinful, to not trust God's sovereign care. This is what's happening, is, is, even though this is not a bad thing, is going to represent more in his heart, which speaks to us that we can outwardly do things that are quote-unquote not necessarily bad in a manipulative way that in our hearts we know is sin. And what's happening here, listen, is Satan is saying to Jesus, listen, Jesus, you're the son of God. You are the son of God. Since you are the son of God, listen, you don't, why are you making yourself hunger? Like, you're going to go to the cross? You're going to make yourself hunger? You're going to endure all of this for the sake of being perfect? You, you know that you already are the Son of God. You could yourself go back to your throne and this thing would be over. Just provide bread for yourself. Like, you don't need to suffer this. You're weak. Look at you. You're a man. Look at you. You're scrawny. You, you, you don't even have any sustenance. You're not healthy. Look at this. It's innocent. Remember the Satan said to, the, to Adam, and when, uh, uh, you know, eat of the fruit. And, and when Adam, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, saw that the fruit was good for what? Food. That's not anything bad. He just thought it was good for food. Just good for food. In the same way here, this is just bread. But what did it represent for Adam? I don't trust that God's going to care for me in this way and that he'll be my God 
I'm going to do this on my own. And if Jesus takes this, he's showing himself to not trust God's sovereign care for him. Just once again, like Israel, pour down the bread. We're hungry. We don't want to trust that as we follow you, you're just going to sustain us. And I think that this is so helpful for us. Church, listen, ready? Many of us, a lot of times, attempt to provide for ourselves with things that maybe don't necessarily look good on the, I mean, look bad on the outside. Instead of trusting God and his sovereign care in our lives. Like, sometimes it takes you being passive and not being active, but being passive in a, in a way that's not like apathy, but in a way that's just, I'm just going to wait for him. I'm just going to trust him rather than try to control and take matters into my own hands. It might not be a bad thing in the simplest sense, but when you take it in terms of be, taking control of your own life, trying to be the God of your own life, you're displaying a, a lack of trust in God. His promises in his word says that he'll care for you. He'll take care of you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he what? He cares for you. What kind of father, when his son asks for a fish or a loaf, gives him a what? Snake or a stone or anything else. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, chapter 2, I mean, verse 2 and 3. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God. So why, again, it brings us back to the mind of Israel because this is what he quotes uh, to the situation of the Israelites. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Listen, you can have all the bread in the world, and when God says it's time, guess what? It's time. Bread doesn't sustain you. God does. And, and Jesus here is showing his trust in the Father. The second thing that we see, the second temptation that we see, is that Jesus worshiped God alone. Follow with me. We're going to keep moving through this. So the second temptation, first temptation, Jesus passes. He's perfect, sinless, right? Hasn't sinned yet. Verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now you might, just for the sake of letting you know, that's probably not figuratively, like literally Jesus is probably like outside of time in some ways and, and, and can, you know, how, how cool is that, right? Uh, Jesus is transporting in some ways to be able to literally see all of the kingdoms of the world at one time. How tempting would that be? Like all of the kingdoms, and Satan says, listen, all you got to do is worship me. I will give you all this authority and all of this glory, for it has all been delivered to me, which is kind of true, but it's not true, and give it to you to whom I will. If you will then worship me, it will all be yours. The second temptation that we see is for Jesus to worship Satan for what he might receive out of it. Now, here's what I want you to understand. It's so Satan takes him up here, shows him all of this, and says, listen, Jesus, here's the deal. You can just bypass this whole thing. 
Like, I, I can just get you in control of everything. You can have all authority, all reign, all rule. Everyone will bow down to you. Everyone will worship you. And you don't have to go through any of this. Why are you doing this? You're the son of God. You don't have to do this. This is dumb. This doesn't make any sense. Just worship me and I'll give you everything. The whole point is this. He knows the temptation for human beings is to worship in order to get what they what? want. That's what we talk, Chad talks about often, right? Idolatry. What's idolatry? It's worship. We worship. Why do we worship? It's not for no reason. We worship because we want something out of it. So we worship in order to receive what the idol promises to give. And what he's saying here is, I can just, if I can entice Jesus to want this more than he wants the cross, then he will worship me in order to get it. And I'll just tell you this, listen, church, don't worship anything to get what you want. Worship God, trust in his sovereign care, wait on him. Jesus passes this test, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. And Exodus 23 from the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus passes this test. This is the second temptation. The first Jesus passes is to say, I trust, I will trust my Father's care overtaking matters into my own hands. Second, he says, I will trust and worship my father alone rather than trying to worship anything else to get what I want. And the third thing that we see, the third temptation, is that Jesus believes God's word. Now, you might say this whole way, obviously, Jesus has been believing God's word because he's been, he's been using God's word. Yes, but this way in a different sense. What do we see in the third temptation? You ready for this? Look at this. This is the first time Satan does something very particular. What does he do in verse, um, in verse 9? He took him to Jerusalem and set him at the pinnacle of the temple, one of the highest places of the temple, probably 300 to 450 uh, foot drop, right? And, uh, and we see this is probably over like the Kidron Valley. And, uh, and so this in this moment, Satan does something different than he's done all along. What does he do? He says, if you are the son of God, and then what does he do? What does he do in this moment that's different? Can you tell? What? He quotes scripture. So now, listen, he's saying, okay, you want to use scripture to just, to just combat everything that I've been saying? All right, well then listen, let's just go by scripture then. You see how just twisted and manipulative, like Satan in the garden who says, like, did God really say, right, any kind of half-truth of what God said, but he didn't say, and what, what, the, what, what the serpent did there, and, and what, the, what Satan did in the Israelites' sin in the desert, not listening to the, to the word of the Lord, and here Satan is using scripture to twist it, which by the way, listen, let me just tell you, that's why you got to be careful. Not every church, not every person who just attaches Jesus' name to it or attaches God's word to it is, is teaching God's heart or intention of his word. Like just because we attach Jesus' name to it or the Bible to it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. That's why we got to search for what the authorial intent is. What is God really meaning in this particular instance? That's why it's so important that we dissect this scripture accurately and specifically. 
So listen, he quotes scripture. What does he quote? He quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now listen, this is a psalm about the Messiah. This is a psalm about the Messiah being protected. It, see how twisted this is? This is a psalm about the Messiah being protected. What do you mean this isn't a psalm about the Messiah being protected? He will protect you, see? It's true. Like, you see how twisted that is, Jesus? If he's not careful here, he could say, all right, well, I guess that's what God's word says. And those people who want to twist God's word to support their own agenda, got to be careful because he uses it out of context. But Jesus here in this third, he doesn't need to test God to see whether or not his word is true. He doesn't need every circumstance, every provision, and for God to do things that only serve him in order to understand and believe that God's word is true. He just believes it. That's why Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This would be testing whether or not he believes God's word to be true, and he doesn't need to do it. And I'll tell you, listen, this is our temptation, church. Our temptation is to not trust God's word and just believe it, but need proof. And that's not faith, that's sight. And God doesn't want us to wait until he proves it. It might be too late. He doesn't want us to, to manipulate him. He wants us to trust his word by faith like children. And so what we see here is that Jesus trusts God's sovereign care. I pray that you would. What we see is that Jesus worships God alone. I pray that you would. And what we see here is that Jesus believes God's word, and I pray that you would. All of this to show he's the son of God. The baptism shows it. The genealogy shows it. And now his victory over Satan shows it. He's the son of God. The last thing that we see in our passage is the victory that he has, and I'll call it the current victory. The current victory, why? Because this is the last time he's gonna need to have victory over Satan? No. He's got a whole three years ahead of him. And at the pinnacle of his task that he has come to fulfill, he will have to overcome Satan for the last time by going to the cross, fulfilling the plan, and dying on our behalf for our sins. And guess what? We know now the end of the story that he has had ultimate victory over Satan. Look at this. Last verse. Verse 13, chapter 4. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's a victory, but it's not the ultimate. James 4, 7 is fulfilled. Look at this. Ready? Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he'll do what? Flee. Jesus won. He's showing us. This is it. We understand now. Four chapters it took us, but we understand now. This is Son of God. He did everything he needed to do to show this to us. He's victor. And so, church, I think we can learn a lot from this along the way of Jesus' examples. The depth of what Jesus does through the word of God to vindicate himself and to fight off Satan. His vulnerability here 
in every way. His understanding of Satan's intent, this twisting of the scriptures, Satan's goal to make us sin, and yet what we see most importantly through all of this, even through the comparison of him being the greater Adam, of him being greater than the Israelites, him fulfilling, if you look at Genesis 3, I wish we had more time, if you look at Genesis 3 and you look at this, and then maybe even look at 1 John 2, 16, like I'll just put it up on the screen for a second, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you look at that pattern of sin that's portrayed to us in 1 John 2, 6, you look at Genesis chapter 3 in the first temptation, you look at the Israelites, and then you look at this temptation in Luke chapter 4, you see that that's what's going on right there, right? I don't have time to, to, to show it, but you can see this pattern. But throughout all of these patterns, throughout all of these issues, throughout all of these comparisons, here's what we see most importantly, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's had victory over sin and Satan, and because of that, he's capable of saving your soul. And so church, as we respond, we're gonna respond today in taking of the Lord's table. And here's what I would like you to do. Very, three very simple things. If you're a believer in Jesus, or maybe you want to put your faith in him for the first time, here's what I would do. I would confess to God in your seat by yourself the ways in which you, listen, the ways in which you have not fulfilled all righteousness. The ways in which you have not had victory over sin and Satan. Confess to him. He already knows. Share with him, God, here's the ways in which I have not been victorious over fighting my sin. Confess those things to him. Secondly, confess that he is the victor, that he is the son of God, that he has had victory over sin and death and hell, and because of that, you believe that he is the only one who can save your soul. And then thank him for going to the cross and having ultimate victory over Satan. Come up as you're ready, when you're, when you're ready, and then come through these aisles. Take the cup, the cracker, go back to your seat. Take it, pray for each one, remembering the blood and the body. And when you're ready, stand up and worship as we close this out, singing and worshiping Jesus, the only one who had full victory over Satan, the only one who has full victory over sin, the only one who has full victory over hell, and the only one who's capable of paying for our sin. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we love your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for what you've shown us in this. I pray that we would be a people who believe you are the Son of God. You've shown us that through your baptism, through the genealogy, and through your victory over Satan. I pray that we would be people who follow the pattern in which you, Jesus, display to us in defeating Satan. I pray that we would take your counsel, your advice, your word, we would follow your example, that we would be people who use the word of God as the sword of the spirit, that we would understand when we're vulnerable and that we would fight Satan. We would try with all of our might using um, everything you've given us, specifically your Holy Spirit. To, to trust your sovereign care, to worship your, you alone, and to believe your word. But God, ultimately, we come in great thankfulness because you are the Son of God, and you have defeated Satan, you have defeated hell, you have defeated sin, and therefore, we can have a great salvation in your name. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.